Welcome to the Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Eagle. Our guest today is here to provide us with a critique of probably the two biggest intellectual influences on my life, that is Ayn Rand and Ludwig von Mises. He is a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at the University of Michigan. He is also the author of several books, including The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism. Matthew McManus, welcome to the show. Nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Looking forward to it. It's fantastic. Okay. One of the criticisms that you've leveled at Ayn Rand is that she's a reactionary. You also say that reactionaries eschew moral arguments and they fear liberty. Now, Ayn Rand has made a moral argument for liberty. How then is she a reactionary under your idea of what a reactionary is? Sure. Well, uh, first off, I should claim uh, I don't actually indicate that uh, Ludwig von Mises or uh, Ayn Rand are reactionaries uh, in the broad sense of the word. I would situate them on the political right, but there's an analytical distinction we need to make between people on the, the political right who are reactionary uh, in the analytical sense of the word and people who adopt a more expansive uh, kind of conception of what being on the right means. Uh, and there's no doubt that Rand and von Misa both fall within that paradigm, right? Uh, in fact, one of the things that's distinctive about Rand in particular is the way that she essentially comes up with an entirely original philosophy that owes very little uh, to conventional streams of reactionary thought with the exception of Nietzsche, uh, and that's distinctive to her and appropriates many modern elements to it. Okay, you specifically write in an article you wrote about reactionaries, re reactionism that you, you say reactionaries in the vein of Ayn Rand. Which piece is this one? Uh, it's from, I believe, Aereo. Aereo. Uh, okay, uh, I can't recall which one this is specifically. Okay, it's possible that you might be right about that. Uh, but let me be clear here, right? Uh, there are two senses in which we typically use the word reactionary, right, uh, on the left. One is as an expansive catch-all term uh, for the political right, which is the sense in which I was employing it there. Okay. Uh, incorrectly, I should add. So that's a mistake on my part, uh, or at least loosely, I should say, on that part. The other is as a more distinctive vein uh, of right-wing thought that has been a pretty constant feature uh, of anti-enlightenment insight uh, and critique since at least Robert Filmer. Uh, that's the more analytical sense in which I would use the term reactionary certainly now, right? Uh, and it's the one that I think is more appropriate. Uh, so in the event that I did characterize them in that kind of way, it does just be clear, it's meant to be the kind of loose catch-all to refer to people on the political right, rather than a specific analytical category uh, that I think is more appropriately applied to a specific sub-vein uh, of right-wing thinking. Okay, so you would then put her on the right, but Ayn Rand was for open borders. She is against moral laws like for instance the the war on drugs or laws against prostitution so and she's pro-life i mean pro-choice so in other than i mean i understand that she's advocates for capitalism but she also argues for a far more laissez-faire capitalism than anybody on the right today is advocating i just don't see how she fits neatly into either right or left as the terms are contemporarily used or have historically been used? Well, it depends on how it is that you conceive the political right, right? So there are a variety of different definitions uh, of being right-wing and left-wing uh, that have been deployed. 
My favorite definition is actually offered by F.A. Hayek uh, in his F.A. Why I'm not a conservative, right? Uh, and it's the piece that I use actually uh, as the fount uh, of my analysis in my later book, um, The Political Right Inequality, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity. And the distinction that Hayek makes is very important, where he says, what makes someone a liberal uh, or what makes someone for that matter left uh, is this conviction that there's a certain degree of moral equality that has to be taken seriously uh, and that should have bearing on how it is that we can see various different normative problems, political and economic, et cetera. To be on the political right or to be conservative, again, he uses the term loosely here, uh, is to believe that there are demonstrably superior people in society uh, and that there are differential expectations that apply to demonstrably superior people as opposed to more ordinary or mundane people. And in that respect, I think it's very clear how Ryan would fall into that paradigm. Uh, whether you look at the Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged or her, her nonfiction work, she always makes very clear distinctions between secondhanders and creators uh, or, you know, producers or productive people or creative people uh, and the mass of people who benefit from their enterprises. So it's very clear that she has a theory of what constitutes a demonstrably superior person, uh, albeit it's just one theory, again, of many that you can find on the political right, which is really what my book is about. So two things. One, the two essays that I love uh, when it comes to critiquing the right are Hayek's Why I'm Not a Conservative and Ayn Rand's Conservatism and Obituary. Mm -hmm. Ayn Rand has also called the right wing the God family country swamp. Now you use this term and I, I, I've come across it a few times in your writings of moral equality. What does moral equality mean? Well, there's a variety of different meanings that one can give to it, right? So moral equality is the postulation that each individual's life has special significance both to them and should be treated as having special significance by social institutions and other people, right? Now, the way that this is argued for and justified uh, varies widely depending upon the liberal thinker that you look at or for that matter, the progressive thinker that you look at, right? So I'll just give a couple of brief introductions to the idea of moral equality uh, and then we'll move on. But one way of conceiving it that Ayn Rand was somewhat critical of uh, was in utilitarian terms, right? Think about the Bentham axiom that each person counts as one and no more than one in terms of calculations of aggregate utility and how to go about achieving it. That's a notion of moral equality, right? You can also think of moral equality in more Kantian terms uh, in the sense that each person has a kind of immeasurable dignity uh, that places them beyond price in the terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, the groundwork to the metaphysical morals and the critique of practical reason. Another way of understanding this is just in terms of political or legal equality, uh, which is what von Misa very tentatively uh, puts forward as the proper basis for equality. And there are more robust conceptions of moral equality that you can also find on the political left, for example, especially Marxists like G.A. Cohen uh, would argue that to a certain extent, if we take the idea of moral equality seriously, extraordinary disparities uh, in life outcomes seem problematic from a normative point of view, because why should it matter that your life goes better than mine? Okay, uh, So there are a lot of different arguments for this. Uh, I would argue that it, the basis of this all goes back to Stoic thought uh, in the Roman era, but we can get into that some other time if you're interested. Okay. So the first thing, the idea of equality before the law, uh, Rand would absolutely adhere to that principle, that mm -hmm. people are equal before the law. The law ought not be granting special privileges, uh, she certainly cr critiqued what's you know called today crony capitalism. She called it the aristocracy of full 
the, the granting of special favors to various groups she despised. Uh, the idea, uh, she actually wrote numerous occasions that each individual, his life is, or her life is an end in itself, not the means to the, the ends of others. So uh, she, her whole philosophy of individualism is based on the value and the worth of individual life. Now, as far as utilitarianism goes, it's interesting you brought it up because the very reason she's hostile to utilitarianism is it can ultimately lead to the sacrifice of some for the benefit of others. So her opposition to that is based on her belief in the value of individual life. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't have a problem with her perspective when it comes to these kinds of points, right? Uh, as a liberal socialist, I take things like, for instance, personal autonomy uh, or many of the classical liberal liberties very seriously, as does Rand, as does von Misa, for that matter, right? Uh, the difference between us would be on the emphasis on um, private property uh, or private ownership of the means of production. That's where we can get into a debate, right? Uh, however, I think it's important to demarcate uh, periods within Rand's authorship. Uh, and I think Jennifer Burns does a good job of this in her sympathetic biography, uh, Ayn Rand, Goddess of the Market, right, where she points out that at various points in Rand's intellectual genealogy, uh, she could adopt more or less egalitarian kind of outlooks when it came to her individualism. Uh, in the 1940s, for instance, when she wrote The Fountainhead, according to Burns, and I would agree with this, uh, she did tend to believe that things like equality before the law uh, was central, not just because this would allow the market to function well, uh, because she had, but because she had a certain amount of faith uh, in the reasonable, or sorry, the rational capacities of ordinary citizens. At other periods in her life, she adopts a bit more of a kind of Nietzschean ethos, uh, which does stress uh, what she sees as to be the fundamental differences between people conceived in terms, not necessarily of their intrinsic worth, but at their capacity uh, for both reason uh, and for productive action. And I think this was really well expressed in uh, Ludwig von Mises' letter to Ayn Rand about Atlas Shrugged. Uh, where he famously said, you know, you have the courage to tell the masses uh, what no one else will tell them, uh, that you are inferior and all the kind of improvements in your life you owe to those who are better than you. And mm. if this be, you know, unpopular in the age of the welfare state, then, you know, I can't remember the rest goes, you know, it's still something that needs to be said, right? Okay, importantly, that was his letter to her. That's what he said, correct? Yes. And... The majority of readers of writers that I've read claim that Nietzsche had an an impact on Rand in her early career, and but you're saying it's at the end. But I have never seen anything written anywhere where she would say that people are ought to be different before the law. Now, as far as people being in in unequal in terms of ability, I mean that's just obvious, isn't it? Some people have higher IQs than others. Some people are better looking than others. Uh, some people are more athletic, some are taller, some are faster, some are stronger. I mean, that's just a fact of existence. But importantly, very importantly, is when she talks about ability and and when Leonard Peikoff, who wrote, you know, with her permission, they said it's not a matter of ability, of intellectual ability here. It's a matter of, of one's commitment to being rational. So, for instance, in the book Atlas Shrugged, Eddie Willers, the character, is not a hero but he's nowhere suggested that he's not a moral human being. Okay, absolutely, right? And again, I think it's important to demarcate periods over the course of her life, right? Uh, however, it would seem to me that you and I have a different interpretation of Atlas Shrugged, uh, or even some of her middle period works than I do, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Now, I never deny that Ayn Rand is insistent that all individuals are entitled to a certain degree of equality before the law, right? Uh, if anything, that's <clears throat> a central point that she takes from the American founders in the classical liberal tradition, right? 
uh, what is differentiated, right, uh, is this kind of romanticism uh, of the private individual that distinguishes her from other liberal authors. And this emphasis on precisely what you talked about, right? This idea that people are differentially rational and that some individuals are vastly more productive than others and consequently should be rewarded in terms of their productive or creative capacities, right? Now, there are other classical liberal authors that lean in that direction as well, right? Uh, but it's very clear that this is on the further end of the spectrum when it comes to a commitment to moral equality than somebody like, say, John Stuart Mill, for example, who is another classical liberal author, also a socialist, most notably, right, uh, who would say certain things like, listen, if there are differential abilities between people, including differential abilities in terms of their rationalizing capacities, then that owes nothing to their intrinsic natures. Uh, it has everything to do with the fact that, that for instance, we haven't educated certain groups of people to be sufficiently rational, or the fact that many people are born in systems of endemic poverty, which limits their capability to develop their more refined human capacities in a way that we need to be attentive to. And for liberal socialists like myself, these are the kinds of things that we need to be attentive to uh, if we're going to be sufficiently committed to the idea of moral equality. And that's something that differentiates us from right-wing liberals uh, or <clears throat> objectivists for that matter. So it seems like what you're talking about here is you're not saying that she's wrong in her conclusion. You're saying that, whereas she would say people are responsible for their moral inequalities, you're saying that people aren't responsible for their moral inequalities because of given circumstances, and she wouldn't allow for that. But that's different than, one, saying people are naturally unequal, two, people would, should be treated differently by the law, and three, that there's just automatic inequalities, right? You're, it's a matter of what, what the reason is for these inequalities. Well, I'd say that it really depends, again, on the period, right? Uh, in her early work, particularly, um, you know, the more Nietzschean period, she tends to emphasize very strongly this idea of there being fundamental inequities between people, both in terms of their aptitudes and in terms of their creative potentials, right? Uh, and again, there's a long history of Nietzschean influence uh, on the political right that's interesting and worth talking about there, right? Uh, at other periods, again, she seems to adopt a more conventionally classical liberal position uh, that people should be allowed a high degree of equality under the law, and that even a minimal kind of democracy uh, might be acceptable by allowing people input into how their society is organized, so long as it doesn't uh, infringe upon fundamental natural rights. Uh, and to be candid, I'm not sure that she ever fully thought through uh, which of these dimensions of her thought should be emphasized, including in the novel Atlas Shrugged, uh, which has elements that puddle and push in both ways. But that's a separate matter that we can get into. The important thing uh, for liberal egalitarians like myself is the point that you made about where our differences in natural aptitude come from. Uh, so I take it that you're familiar with the work of John Rawls, for example, right? Yes. Okay, very good. So as a kind of Rawlsian liberal socialist, I would look at the kind of arguments of somebody like Rand who says, People have different natural aptitudes and natural abilities, and those can express themselves in the market, and people should be rewarded on that basis. And I would say, listen, uh, natural aptitudes, even under ideal circumstances, are purely the result of a genetic lottery. They're morally arbitrary or arbitrary from a moral point of view. And so to put the kind of normative weight on them that people like Rand do and suggest that reward should be attendant to these differences in natural ability is to give a lot of normative weight to something that really doesn't matter all that substantially. And that's even in the best case scenario, right? Say where we all have the potential to win the genetic lottery or lose the genetic lottery without any kind of social circumstances hedging it one way or another. We know perfectly well from social scientific data that children who are brought up in poor families 
uh, are far less likely to develop certain kinds of aptitudes, right? Uh, they're far more likely to be moral nourished. They're far less likely to be read to. They're far less likely to be breastfed for a variety of reasons. And all this has a ripple effect downwards through life, uh, influencing everything from the academic ability through to athletic ability, right? So I would even go further than Rawls and say it's not just a genetic lottery. Uh, it's a genetic lottery that's hedged towards winners and losers from the very beginning. So I'm just not prone to granting um, differences in natural talents and capabilities the kind of weight that somebody like Ayn Rand would. Okay. The first thing is that I don't know if you noticed this, but earlier you told me that her Nietzschean period was toward the end. But just now you told me earlier in her Nietzschean period. That's that's the first thing. I, I just want to get that out there because you've now ascribed two separate periods as being Nietzschean period. And I'm not sure she would even accept any significant influence from Nietzsche. But it's a very it's this is a vital, vital point here. Nowhere does she ascribe moral significance to innate ability. Her whole theory of ethics is contingent on choice and it's only open to matters of choice where natural ability is not open to choice. And she actually downplayed natural ability, saying that if people would put forth the effort, they could achieve. So that's just not accurate to say that she put a emphasis on natural ability when it comes to morality. But this is, I think, would it be fair to say that ultimately your problem with Rand and Mises is a moral one? Is that fair to say? I'd say so, yes. But first off, let's be clear, right? Uh, I said that it wasn't my position uh, that Ayn Rand went through an earlier Nietzschean period uh, prior to the writing of The Fountainhead and then a later Nietzschean period. This is Jennifer Burns' uh, position in Ayn right. Rand, Goddess of the Market. And I indicated that I agree with this, right? That yep. Nietzsche's influence waxed and waned over the period course of okay. her life. Uh, and it tended to be more foregrounded uh, in the 1950s during the epoch of, you know, the Eisenhower, Johnson, Kennedy, you know, FDR welfare state, right? That she was deeply contemptuous of, right? Uh, but in terms of things like the emphasis she places on natural ability versus individual choice, again, I think that you see differential references to that depending upon the period in her work, right? Uh, at some point, she really tends to offer an admiring portrait uh, of individuals she takes to be creative geniuses, right? Uh, whether you think of somebody like Howard Rourke or for that matter, John Galt, particularly in the entrepreneurial sphere. And it's very clear that one of the reasons that she admires them, as opposed to the Peter Keatings of the world, for example, is precisely because they have these aptitudes that other people don't, right? Uh, so Keating is inherently a kind of mediocre person, uh, and that's the best that he'll ever be able to achieve, right? Now, I would even go further, though, and this is the important Rawlsian point, uh, which is to and say that, look, individual life choices are definitely something that should be given normative weight. Uh, but I certainly wouldn't give them nearly the amount of normative weight as someone like Rand in terms of outcomes in life, because a tremendous amount of the choices that we make are also, again, predetermined by circumstances that are arbitrary from a moral point of view. And we know this, again, through looking at just reams of social scientific data, right, where think, for example, um, birth order, right? So for instance, uh, there's a lot of statistical evidence that suggests that first children are far more likely to be successful than their later siblings. And they're far more likely to make optimizing choices uh, than their earlier siblings, or sorry, their later siblings, right? Now, these are choices that people are making to pursue different careers. They have the same kind of opportunities in life for the most part, right? Uh, but again, does birth order really matter that much from a moral point of view? I wouldn't say so, right? So this is just one of the reasons why I tend from a Rawlsian standpoint to reject the idea that the proper way of deciding what people should have 
uh, owes anything to a notion of desert or deservingness, right? For me, a notion of deservingness that is central to many species of Randian philosophy is really just a kind of anachronism, right? It's very similar to the kind of old idea that you found in Christian ethics, for example, where there's this idea that the proper society is one that gives to each person what they deserve. Uh, and, I've, and if a proper society doesn't do that, God will eventually do that. I'm just not really concerned with what people deserve in that kind right. of sense. I think there's too much arbitrariness. Like okay, that. so the first thing is that the difference between work and Keating was not natural ability. The difference between Rourke and Keating was orientation toward the world and toward other people. Rourke was an individualist. Keating was what she called a second-hander. And Keating, actually, it turns out, his natural inclination was to be an artist. By the time he decides to be an artist or says, can I be an artist, Rourke says, it's too late. He doesn't anywhere say, you never could have done it. But the the big the, the, the bigger issue that I, that I just want to address here the, before I get to the, my next question is my initial point was that you called Rand the reaction. You then said, well, maybe it was the, the, the misapplied term. And you said, but she's right wing. Your point about her being right wing is that she doesn't believe in moral equality, moral equality being the value of the individual human being and equality before the law. But she absolutely believed in equality for the law. And she absolutely believed in the, uh, in the I don't want to say inherent, but the valuable or, or the value of individual life. So would you concede that just labeling her right wing is not an accurate description of her? That she really well, doesn't fit on either side. Not when you think of, like I said, open borders, pro-choice, against you know legislation of morality. It's hard for me to understand in where how she would fit in with the, the right with a William F. Buckley Jr. or Russell Kirk or even an Edmund Burke, for instance. Well, again, it depends upon your political theory of the right. Okay, uh, and again, the example that I gave on uh, was Hayek's, right, uh, and, and that's what I indicated, right. So for me, uh, what makes one right wing or left wing isn't a commitment to something like equality before the law, right, which many conservatives endorse, right. Russell Kirk endorsed that as well. Uh, in many of his books, including uh, The Conservative Mind, right? Uh, what makes someone right-wing from Hayek's perspective and from mine uh, is this commitment to the idea that there are demonstrably superior people. Uh, now, the way that demonstrably superior is connoted by a variety of different right-wing thinkers is vast, right? Uh, so Rand has her own theory about what constitutes a demonstrably superior person, uh, which you articulated, I think, very well, right? With this notion of kind of willed effort and choice, right? That is determinative of what one should deserves in life uh, or the kind of outcomes that one can expect. Uh, other right-wing thinkers, for instance, Nietzsche, right, have a very different theory uh, about what is appropriate in terms of evaluating someone as demonstrably superior. And Mises has his own theory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to go into that, right? Um, but that's, you know, uh, my political theory of the right, right? Drawn from this kind of Hayekian idea. If you come from a more American standpoint, uh, and you would regard somebody like a traditionalist, right, uh, or a conventional conservative as exhausting the content of right-wing thought, then sure, you could say that Ayn Rand occupies a kind of penumbral status within that. Uh, and I know authors who have made that argument. I don't buy it, but some of them are convincing. Uh, a very good figure in that vein would be somebody like Jason Brennan, who I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Who's... No, I, don't, I never heard of him. Oh, really? Well, he's a really good libertarian uh, philosopher. I believe at Georgetown University, wrote an interesting book called uh, Against Democracy and also quite a good guide called uh, Libertarianism. Uh, and he argues that libertarianism doesn't really click cleanly on the left-white spectrum, 
uh, for precisely the reasons you're articulating, right? Now, if you want to have a broader discussion about that, we can. I'm just not convinced upon that based upon my own convictions on this. Okay, so before I get to Mises, which I definitely want to do, mm -hmm. the reason I asked you for if your critique of them was primarily moral. So do you believe there is an objective morality? In other words, do you believe there is a morality that is the right morality? Yes. Okay. How do you determine it? How do you judge it? How did you discover it? Well, there's two different operative levels to this, right? A meta-ethical level uh, and then a substantive level, right? So uh, my primary meta-ethical convictions uh, are what might I call quasi-cognitivist moral realism uh, from the Oxford philosopher Derek Parfit, right? And Parfit's conception of quasi-cognitivist moral realism is that we should think of moral laws uh, or moral imperatives, if you prefer, as something along the lines of mathematical entities, right? They don't exist in some kind of platonic heaven out there for us to discover. They clearly mm -hmm. come from processes of human cognition, right? There's no such thing as the number one in the wild, right? But nonetheless, uh, much like the laws of logic or the laws of, mag of mathematics have a kind of intrinsic determinancy to them uh, that isn't purely subject to human subjectivity uh, so to do the imperatives of morality right they come from process of human condition but we are bound to them uh, in ways that we don't simply choose so that's my meta ethical position okay. but very simply right uh, in terms of my kind of substantive moral beliefs uh, i think i was pretty clear about that right i'm a Rawlsian liberal socialist uh, i tend to think that all individuals have an intrinsic uh, equal worth to them uh, and I think that the way that we should try to conceive of political institutions is along the lines of what would be agreed to in fair conditions uh, where people would be willing to cede certain kinds of liberties that they might have in a state of nature in order to establish social institutions that would be more conducive to human flourishing in the broad sense of the word. Uh, and in terms of the more practical implications of this, I think that liberal socialism does the best job of hitting those criteria the kinds of societies that you'd see, for instance, in the Nordic countries, uh, albeit with more workplace democracy. Okay. So first, when you talked about your meta-ethical stance, you talked about Parfit, and you talk, and I've only, I've never read his ethics. I've only read his stuff on identity. Well, sure. I'm going to take your word for it and what you just said. I have no reason to think you're wrong. So his morality is essentially relational, right? It's not out there somewhere. It has to do with, like you said, there's no number one in nature. It has to do with human beings relating with the world. Is that correct? I wouldn't say so, no. Uh, so okay. all okay. what matters, I don't want to dive too much into it because it's 1,000 page books and it will be here forever. Oh, it's a fascinating type of subject, right? Yeah. Uh, but we can demarcate three separate periods to his work, right? Uh, one is on the question of personal identity, which, as you mentioned, he problematizes in very interesting ways, uh, ways that I disagree with, to be clear, uh, for reasons you probably be sympathetic to, but ways. Uh, Reasons and Perfins uh, kind of moves in the direction of being interested in how moral issues relate to questions of personal identity, and there's some very profound uh, ruminations in that text. Uh, but On What Matters makes it very clear that he says, look, uh, Logic and mathematics uh, have an objectivity to them uh, that is the result of human beings essentially conceiving uh, of a priori systems of organization uh, that have their own intrinsic laws that are the result of human cognition, 
but they're not the result of human whim or human choice, right? So again, the number one and the number two don't exist in the wild. Uh, they're the creations of human intelligence, right? But just like we would never deny that one plus one equals two, uh, we do because we, we don't just get to choose that, right? Uh, so too, we don't get to choose whether or not something like murder uh, is appropriate or not. It's just obviously so, uh, even though there's nothing in nature that dictates that um, murder is wrong, uh, it's the result of human cognition and human reason that we've impose okay. this imperative upon ourselves okay so now for Rawls right the, the part that you left out was his moral intuitions mm -hmm. the idea right that you you have these moral intuitions and then you reason and as you reason you try to approach the the moral intuitions and you adjust them back and forth right mm -hmm. it, do, is that something that you agree to not entirely, no. Uh, I mean, I think that this is this notion of reflective equilibrium that you're referring to, right? Yeah. I think that there's a certain kind of common sense quality to this that we could all agree upon, right? That most of us have fairly abstract cognitive moral principles that we like to abide by, or we perceive ourselves as being bound to, right? You have yours and I have mine. Uh, but most of us would, to a certain extent, want to check those uh, against the empirical implications of being bound by uh, those principles, in terms of our practical activity in the world, right? And that's all that he's saying, right? That if I were to sit there and say something like, you should never kill a person, right? That sounds like a pretty sound moral principle, right? But we all know because of empirical experience that there are instances where it might be appropriate to take a life, however tragic that might be, right? If somebody was murdering, say my wife, right? Uh, or trying to kill my wife, if I had to take their life in order to save her, that might be very well be regrettable, right? Uh, and I would feel very bad about it. Uh, but I wouldn't feel that it was a moral wrong, right? If anything, I would feel that it was morally right for me to do that because I have certain duties and obligations to my wife uh, and indeed to prevent wrongful murder or uh, death uh, through murder from occurring, right? So it's just about checking one's sound principles against these kinds of empirical case studies uh, to try to nuance and refine them. So after this process of reflective equilibrium, we might say, okay, the principle that thou shalt not kill, pretty sound one, but it's subject to these qualifications now. So we need to nuance it in these particular ways given what we know about the real world. Okay. So each one of those things that you said is a moral claim in and of itself. You said, yeah, we would say that it's wrong to kill. Okay, there's one. That's a moral judgment. But then saying, well, there's certain times when it would be okay and you went through a you know, few instances. But all those require moral judgments as well. So are all the, it's so for each judgment, we require reflective in equilibrium. That's the first point. My second point is just because if people are behind the veil of ignorance, and they're trying to figure out what would be the, the, you know, what would be their choice to live if they didn't know how, you know, what position they were going to be in, whatever. One, they could be mistaken mm -hmm. as far as what would be best for them. So they might think, for instance, that a uh, serfdom, you know, a few the feudal system would be best for them. I, I don't know, but I, I would say that they'd be wrong. But they still they could reason incorrectly and come to the wrong conclusion. Secondly, it's hard for me to understand, even what given whatever conclusion that they would come to, how that would then render it a moral sort of a, uh, imperative that their conclusions are, have a moral significance, because that's what they would choose under those conditions. I go with Rand's definition of morality, your code of values to guide one's behavior. So first of all, do you agree with that definition of morality or do you have a different definition? If so, where does that come from and how do you validate that? Because when I read Theory of Justice, which is the book that you're talking about, 
all through it, I came across what I believe to be an arbitrariness behind Rawls' morality, that, that he wasn't deriving it from reality. He wasn't saying, let's look to reality and decide what's right and wrong. It was about what well, we have intuitions about what's right and wrong, with, which I would say that, well, people's intuitions about what is right and wrong could vary from neighborhood to neighborhood, never mind from country to country. And, and not only that, but just the whole, we're going to discuss this, and, and then, the, like you said, the reflective equilibrium. I don't understand how that has any moral significance. I mean, I understand he said it does, but not in the sense that I've ever thought of morality or any moralist that I've ever read. It's all about how you should live one's life, and he's really talking about what one deserves and you know that sort of thing. Okay, well, just for on Rawls. Uh... It's important to note that he's very clearly uh, a proponent of the idea that morality flows from human reason, right, uh, or our rational human capacities, right. Uh, and he makes this very clear where he make, when he makes a distinction between, for instance, being rational and being reasonable. Uh, and he says we need to understand that being reasonable is more proximate to this idea of trying to obtain reflective equilibrium, uh, but it's not intuitional and it's not arbitrary. Uh, in fact, in theory of justice, you probably recall uh, he develops a very serious critique of moral intuitionism of the sort that was developed in, uh, for instance, early 20th century Anglo thought, for example, um, the kind of thing that would be associated with, uh, what's it called again, um, the Cambridge Apostles, for example, excuse me, uh, just took me a few seconds there. So the basic idea behind uh, the original position uh, is to rely on as few severe theses about human nature as possible, since we're all very different as individuals, uh, in order to establish what we would regard as a legitimate set of political institutions to govern us uh, and to orient us towards what is right, which is different from orienting us towards what is good, to be clear, right? Uh, and he says, look, my basic thesis is going to be that we can assume that all other things being equal, people are neither angels or demons, uh, the average person, right? Uh, and that they are, for the most part, pretty self-interested. Right, uh, they might be willing to do certain kinds of things for their family, for their loved ones, for you know the cats, but they're not going to sit there and be self-sacrificing for everyone. So let's operate from that assumption, right? Uh, so we put these people behind the veil of ignorance uh, and say we're removing certain kinds of special information about who you are in particular uh, in order for you to think about this more impartially, right? Rather than being motivated by your self-interest, sorry, your uh, myopic or subjectivist uh, orientations about making sure that you are well off, regardless of whether or not that would be conducive to the benefit of everyone. What principles would you choose under these circumstances to govern society? And Rawls insists that it, we have to be principled, or so we have to be multi-principled uh, in terms of the kind of principles that we think would be proper for any given society. Because he says, look, we have very good reasons to prioritize liberty above virtually everything else. And that's why it's the first principle that he thinks people would choose behind the veil of ignorance. Because he says, look, if you don't know who you are behind this veil of ignorance, you don't know whether you're Muslim or objectivist or Kantian or Rawlsian, uh, you're going to sit there and say, I want to live in a society where I will freely be able to espouse my doctrine, uh, where I'll be able to live according to its dictates within certain kind of limitations, uh, and where I can, can even debate uh, people who have contrary moral points of view to try to persuade them to adopt my viewpoint, right? Uh, and that seems quite plausible to me, right? Uh, that... If you didn't know whether you're going to be an objectivist or a Rawlsian or Catholic or Christian behind the veil of ignorance, you want to secure for yourself the conditions wherein you could live by your doctrine and you could continue to espouse it and try to find converts if that is what you are so inclined to do, right? 
But Rawls goes on to say, look, liberty doesn't exhaust the content of what most people are interested in, uh, in terms of their political institutions, because there are other things we have good reason to care about. Uh, and that's where the difference principle comes in and the principle of fair quality of opportunity for which it gives a variety of very complicated arguments that we're not gonna have time to get into here because we only have 10 minutes left. Yes. Uh, but the, probably the one that I'm most sympathetic for to uh, is the one that I brought up at the beginning, this notion of moral arbitrariness, right? Uh, and the fact that the differentiations in terms of natural talents and abilities doesn't seem all that significant from a moral point of view. Uh, so we shouldn't describe it the kind of weight, uh, for instance, that both classical liberals and Christians uh, gave to this notion of desert and uh, what one is morally entitled to on the basis of one's character or contribution. So I have a yes or no question because I want to get to Mises. And like you said, we only have 10 minutes. Do you think it would be fair to say that different groups of people in that situation you just described, the veil of ignorance, different groups would come to different conclusions? No, uh, and yes, so that's not a yes or no question. So I'll try to be really brief about this, right? Uh, there's a number of different conditions that he bakes into the contractarian mechanism behind the veil of ignorance in the original position, right? Uh, one is the one that I just mentioned, right? That you don't have information about what role or what position you particularly occupy in society, right? Uh, but the other thing that he brings up is this idea that uh, any kind of principles of justice that you adopt must be subject to a consensus. And this is very important, right, in answering the kind of challenge that you're posing. Uh, because he says, look, people behind the veil of ignorance will also be aware of the fact that they could be belonging to this group or that group or that group, and there's going to be a kind of deep pluralism within society. Uh, and that means that being aware of the fact that there's a deep pluralism in society and they might belong to any of these differentiated groups, any principles that they choose would need to be acceptable to any of these groups, uh, since, of course, once the veil is lifted, you might be Catholic or you might be objectivist or you might be Rawlsian. Uh, and all of these different people from these different groups would need to find the principles that are now governing them acceptable. OK, what, what I meant was if you were to do this, for instance, in Pakistan mm -hmm. and then you were to do it in Canada and then in America and then in Britain, it seems to me that different groups would come to different conclusions. For instance, somebody that was that that was operating under the idea of the invisible hand in economics, would be more prone to say, regardless of what condition I'm in, where I start off, I think that this is going to create the you know greatest value to the greatest amount of people. So that's the type of world I want to live in. Whereas somebody that's been raised in a more collectivist culture, you know, might say something different. That's what I mean is by if you had different groups of people that were reasoning under these conditions, they would come to different conclusions as far as what the good society would look like. Yeah, absolutely, right? If they weren't behind the veil of ignorance. Uh, no, no, I'm saying special... there is a veil of ignorance. But if you, you take 50 people here, right? 50 people on the left, 50 people on the right, and put them in two separate groups and let them reason in, in under those conditions, which by the way, it, it's ironic to me that he critiques the arbitrary because that's pretty arbitrary to come up with all these qualifications and positions and everything else that come to the conclusions he wants. But nevertheless, assuming that you have those conditions, I cannot foresee that two different groups would come to the exact same conclusion, the exact well, same consensus. Well, this is something that he dedicates an awful lot of time to, right? Because he's saying, look, it's not necessarily that they would agree on the basis for the principles, right? Uh, say you were aware of the fact that there are a wide variety of religious groups in society behind the veil of ignorance. You weren't sure if you were a member uh, of those religious groups, but you were aware that they're existing and you're aware that you might be a member of that group. 
Uh, and you're also aware that there are many secular groups within society and that you might be a member of one of such social groups, you know, objectivist, Marxist, whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, being behind the veil of ignorance in the original position requires you to adopt the standpoint of somebody in either of these groups uh, because you're not necessarily sure what you're going to wind up in if the veil is lifted. And this is precisely why he says that any of the principles that you choose need to be subject to a consensus that would be agreed upon by a member of any of these different groups, regardless of the kind of metaphysical viewpoints that they might adopt and their comprehensive vision of the good life. Uh, and the other point that he makes that's a little bit clear, political liberalism, uh, is he thinks, now this is very controversial, right, uh, that justice is fairness, or at least political liberalism, uh, would be subject to an overlapping consensus because it would be endorsed from people from a wide variety of different backgrounds uh, as the appropriate political uh, philosophy to govern individuals in a pluralistic society where we're always going to face the fact that there's deep disagreement about certain kind of fundamental issues. Mm -hmm. Now, I personally have problems with some aspects of his argument to this effect, but I'm sure you want to get to Von Mises, so. I do, I do. Let's not, let's not spend time with that, right? Okay. Just to say that- if I do want to have you back on at some point in the future, because I want to be able to dive deeper into some of these issues. But my first I question is this, is about Von Mises. You said that Von Mises was not a scientist, that he was an ideologue, right? Mm -hmm. So have you personally, have you ever written a detailed critique on his methodology, on his position on the socialist, the impossibility of economic calculation under socialism or his trade cycle theory? Well, the, the most substantial piece that I've written on von Mises was that article for Jacobin, right, which wasn't intended to be a kind of comprehensive critique, rather just a kind of introductory. Not at all. No, it wasn't. It was, that's, that's, that's why I'm asking, because from what I've seen, you hadn't. And my, my question here, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to give you the, the flavor of my question. Ultimately, von Mises had a very elaborate system. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, that, that's not my question. My point is as to saying that it's not scientific. He had a, a, a methodology that he dedicated a significant amount of time to, and then he had various things. He had the impossibility of social socialist calculation. He had his theory of the trade cycle. And here's the, the, the thing. Von Mises predicted both the Great Depression and the fall of the Soviet Union. Not many economists could do that, or did it, rather. So to just try to dismiss him by saying he's not scientific when you haven't written, you haven't dove into these issues, I, I just, I think that it's, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? I think it's unfair to von Mises to, to do that, to say he's not scientific, not to say that he's wrong. That's a different, that's a different story. I happen to think he's mostly right, but that, that's different. But to just say he's an ideologue, not a scientist is more of a smear than a critique if you're not going to prove it. Well, first off, you know, one of the things that I brought up uh, was that it wasn't my characterization of von Mises as an ideologue that I was invoking, right? Uh, one of the things that I brought up in my brief article was the fact that Milton Friedman, of all people, uh, found von Mises rigid, dogmatic, uh, and inflexible, right? And famously bringing up the fact that at one of the Mont Pelerin meetings uh, where people were giving a very long digression on a technical issue in economics, uh, where no one could be charitably called a socialist. Uh, he stood up in the middle of the meeting. Yeah, everyone's a socialist, right? So again, let's be clear. Uh, if Milton Friedman thinks that you're being too ideological about the free market, then I would argue that there's some basis uh, for my characterization. Now, to be fair to you, I think that you're right, okay? That my brief piece on him for Jacobin is by no means a comprehensive critique of everything that is important and significant about von Mises' system, okay? Uh, it wasn't intended to be, to be clear, right? It's intended to be kind of a little primer uh, 
2000 word article, right? Uh, and I did point out, for instance, that I do think, for instance, that the calculation problem that he brings up uh, does pose very significant, perhaps insolvable problems for socialists who endorse something like a command economy, for instance. Yeah. Uh, and there are a wide variety of socialists uh, contemporaneously who actually are agree with that position uh, and would say that one of the very few insights of any economists that socialists agree with is this idea that a command economy is subject to very substantial problems because it can't allocate resources effectively without a price mechanism. Uh, one of the points that I brought up, however, is that contemporary von Misians uh, don't seem to appreciate the richness uh, or the diversity that's intrinsic to the socialist tradition, uh, because command economy socialism is just one very specific, uh, and by this point, pretty marginal school of thought uh, within the broader socialist tradition. So for instance, I myself uh, am what we call a market socialist uh, of a kind of von Mills, or sorry, von Millsian, just created the ultimate classical liberal, excuse me, <laughs> uh, of a kind of Millsian type, right? Uh, so, you know, I tend to believe in markets for these reasons, uh, but I tend to think that it would be a, progressive development uh, if, cap if firms were owned by workers rather than capitalists, right? Uh, and you could still have markets and you could still manage things by prices, uh, but workers would be in control of the means of production and things would be, or and there'd be a robust welfare state to insulate people uh, against the worst outcomes in life. So I just was a little bit miffed uh, that in von Mises' uh, very large book on socialism, uh, he does a really good job of demolishing the problems with command economy socialism, but other things like syndicalism, market socialism, he tends to give a kind of uh, short dismissive uh, approach to. Uh, and I don't think that that's really appropriate. And I think that if von Missions want uh, to stay contemporary uh, with what socialists are arguing, then they need to build upon what he did in that book to try to update uh, their claims for the 21st century. Since I can't think of a single socialist, saying, and I, probably, I know a lot of them who's arguing for command economy socialism anymore. What you're saying is, is they should accept a different definition of what socialism actually has traditionally been, because now it's changed. Well, I, I would argue that actually uh, this is the traditional definition going all the way back, right? Uh, so the founder of socialism, or one of the founding figures of socialism, uh, was Saint-Simon, right? Uh, who famously argued for just the kind of mechanisms that I'm talking about. He certainly wasn't anti-market, right? Uh, another extremely important person in the ethical socialist tradition uh, is the figure I just mentioned, John Stuart Mill, uh, who antecedent somebody like Karl Marx. Uh, Mill very famously said uh, that he was a socialist in his autobiography. In fact, he insisted that one cannot be committed to liberal principles without uh, adopting a kind of socialism, right? So that's the tradition uh, that I'm engaged in. Uh, now, if you wanted to critique command economy socialism, I'd be right there with you for all the reasons that you probably would articulate, uh, because okay. I don't think that there's a good argument that one can make for it. Uh, but just like it would be reductive to say that classical liberalism ends in Pinochet, uh, so we should reject it on that basis. It's extremely reductive to say that all schools of socialism are just about trying to emulate the social, uh, the socialist union, the Soviet Union, uh, when that's just not true. No, but the, the, the traditional definition is public ownership of the means of production. That's the traditional definition. But you had to go. It's 145. I would like you to give me two more minutes so I can ask one more question. If you can't, I understand. Two more minutes. Uh, otherwise, my wife will kill me. So, sure. Two more okay. minutes. The, to me, one of the harshest critiques and the most unfair you gave of Anisis was you said that he famously defended fascism. This is the paragraph from the book Liberalism that you're talking about. He says, it cannot be denied that fascism and similar movements aiming at the establishment of dictatorships are full of the best intentions and their intervention has for the moment, this is, you know, in the 1920s, for the moment saved European civilization. 
The merit that fascism is thereby won for itself will live on eternally in history. But most people stop there. He goes on to say, but though its policy has brought salvation for the moment, it is not of the kind which could promise continued success. Fascism was an emergency makeshift. To view it as something more would be a fatal error. Given that in all his critiques of government intervention in the economy, isn't it unfair to kind of label him an apologist for fascism? Well, let's be clear, right? Uh, I didn't actually say that much about uh, his connection uh, or his apologies for fascism in my article for Jacobin. Uh, and that was intentional uh, because I think that there is... A, well, you said he famously defended fascism or praised fascism. He did, I mean, right? And that, I think that that's not really. I mean, it's a it's okay, like well, me praising the Soviet Union for saving the, the world in World War II. Okay, and, but let, okay, but let, let's be clear, right? He did praise fascism in the paragraph that you mentioned, right? Now that is a very different thing than saying that he was a fascist, right? Uh, or even that he would be supportive of fascism, which is again why it was not central to my analysis in that piece. Uh, even though I think it is important to consider because. There are certain elements in von Mises' thinking uh, which can tilt uh, in a more authoritarian direction when it comes to trying to preserve private property against social forces that he thinks uh, happen to be disintegrationist uh, or a threat uh, to private property. Uh, and this isn't a purely hypothetical matter either. Uh, so, for instance, in the early 1920s, uh, when Vienna uh, was undergoing a wide array of different strikes uh, and union activism, uh, Von Mises took the rather illiberal position that there's nothing wrong with the government stepping in uh, to silence these workers, uh, even using violence to do so, because the preservation of private property was more important than something like, say, political expression. Right okay. uh, now, I think that's highly problematic. And given these kind of policy preferences, one can see why he would think as an emergency or stopgap mechanism, there might be something appealing to 1920s Italian fascism and its anti-communism and anti-socialism. Uh, but I just want to make clear, I never claimed that Vamisa was a fascist. I would not claim that he was a fascist. Uh, and it's important for people on the left, like myself, to be able to demarcate these thinkers with a certain amount of analytical charity. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, to go back to our earlier point, uh, I've tried to be more careful myself about using catch-all terms like reactionary, uh, because even though terms like you know reactionary, right-wing, uh, socialist, right, uh, are used very blasely, we could all do with being a little bit more precise in our designations. Matt, thank you very much for coming on. You've been an absolute gentleman. I appreciate it. I hope to have you back on sometime. Is there some place that people can find you anywhere you'd want to send them to go to get your books or articles? Yeah, no problem. Uh, I just want to say, Mike, uh, yeah, I had a really good time. And thank you also for being so polite. Uh, it's not always something I experienced, so I had a good time myself. Uh, yeah, if people want, they can check out my book, uh, The Political Right and Equality, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity. Uh, that's coming out with Rutledge in July. Uh, it doesn't really have very much to say uh, about what I probably call right-wing liberals, because I think of them as a specific class that needs their own book. Uh, but there is some interesting stuff there about Kirk, Meyer, mid-20th century conservatism, for those who are interested in the United States. Uh, and another book that I have uh, coming out soon that I'm looking forward to announcing uh, will be The Political Theory of Liberal Socialism. So if people are interested in learning about how one can be a liberal and a socialist, uh, keep an eye for that announcement. I'm sure that'd be very interesting for your listeners. All right. Thanks again. For now, this is Michael Leibowitz, the Rational Legalist, signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Till next time.